Now, if you found your place in Acts chapter 24 tonight, uh, we're going to do, hopefully, it'll be all 27 verses. So I'm not going to read them all at once right now. But what we are seeing now, and if you remember last week in Acts chapter 23, the background is is that Lysias, if you remember, he's the captain of the Roman guard. Lysias had sent a letter and sent Paul with a letter to the governor there at Caesarea. He's the governor of Judea, and his name is Felix. And so uh, Lysias had sent this letter saying, here's Paul, this is what I think is going on. And if you remember, uh, Lysias had intercepted that plot of the Jews wanting to kill Paul. And so he sent them with the 500 soldiers to Caesarea, keep them safe. Now, in chapter 24, we're going to look at this chapter. And I want us to look at two things. There's two things that happen in, in this chapter. There's two tragedies. First of all, we see a tragedy of the trial that Paul's about ready to go through. And then we see the tragedy of Felix's soul. And so we're going to divide those two. Now, for the next two years, Paul is going to have three trials. It's going to be here, chapter 24 with Felix. Chapter 25, he's going to have a trial with Festus. And then in chapter 26, he's going to be in front of King Herod Agrippa. And we see this is the first trial that he has come to. And the, really, when it comes to Rome, law was the most characteristic and lasting expression of the Roman spirit. The writer of Caesar and Christ wrote that. Law was the most characteristic and lasting expression of the Roman spirit, but the problem, just like we have today and everywhere else where you have government, you have corruption. And we're going, Paul's getting ready to find out just how corrupt things can be. And so the three things that we're going to look at between 24 and 30, I'm sorry, chapter 24, verse 1 through 23, it's Paul's trial. We're going to see the charge against Paul, Paul's defense, and then the verdict. And then, cha- and then verse 24 through 27 is where we have the second tragedy that happens, and this is with Felix's soul. So chapter 24, verse 1, let's read. And after five days, Ananias, the high priest, descended with the elders and with a certain orator named Tertullus, who informed the governor against Paul. And when he was called forth, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Seeing that by thee we enjoy great quietness, and that very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by thy providence, we accept it always, and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Notwithstanding that I be not further tedious unto thee, I pray thee that thou wouldest hear us of thy clemency a few words. Now, before we get to verse 5, and that's where the charges against Paul really start, let's define who we're looking at. Now, Ananias is the high priest. We talked about him. He was a corrupt high priest of the Jews. And then they lawyered up. So if you remember uh, last chapter, Lysias said he took Paul, he took Paul out uh, and he went uh, to Caesarea. Remember they snuck out nine o'clock 
And then Lysias told the Sanhedrin, he told the Jew, Jewish council, you've got to take this up with Felix. Now, Felix is, again, the governor of Judea, kind of like uh, Pilate was the governor at one point. And so now, you know, this, of course, after a while, Pilate was replaced, and here we have Felix. Now, <clears throat> Tertullus is, we don't know a lot about Tertullus, except that he may have been a Hellenistic Jew, he may have been Greek, um, but we know that he was a lawyer, and it was not uncommon for the Sanhedrin to have a lawyer uh, when they went to Roman law, because either the language barrier and the mannerisms of Roman law, uh, as we see with Tertullus. Now, Felix, Felix is kind of a sad story all in his own. He wasn't, according to Roman history, Felix was a bit of a joke. Uh, Roman history, he was the, one of the most incompetent governors that there was. And actually, in two years, when Festus replaces him, it was because Nero finally got fed up with him. The only reason Felix is a governor is because his best friend was friends with Emperor Claudius. And so he got the job because of politics, right? His best friend was friends of the emperor. But... Felix was not a good man. He, he is a former slave, and he was very harsh with the Jews. I mean, very harsh. And so for Tertullus to come in, you know, the slick lawyer kind of way that he comes in, he, and he is flattering Felix. Look at verse 2. And when he was called forth, Tertullus began to accuse him, Paul, saying, Seeing that by thee we enjoy great quietness, and that very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by thy providence. Well, he's laying it on thick. We accept it always, and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. This is not the way the Jews felt about Felix. Notwithstanding, verse 4, that I be not further tedious unto thee, I pray thee that thou wouldest hear us of thy clemency, and that is his sense of justice, his sense of fairness, a few words. So Tertullus knew he couldn't keep flattering Felix because none of it was true. And probably Felix knew that none of it was true. And so he couldn't be long, you know, uh, this, the lawyering of him, nor could he be long in the charges he brings against Paul because neither of those were true either. I mean, think about the position that Tertullus has put in here. Uh, the charges that they're bringing up against Paul can't be proven. They can't be proven at all. So Tertullus is going to have to stretch the truth a little bit. And it's sad that that's the way a lot of cases go today, isn't it? I mean, we see that in our own judicial system. How many times has, has cases been won by people stretching the truth? And so this case against Paul, here comes the charges. Verses 5 through 9, here's the charges that they charge against Paul. Notice the three charges. For we have found this man a pestilent fellow and a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, who also hath gone about to profane the temple, whom we took, and would have judged according to our law, 
But the, cap, but the chief captain, Lysias, came upon us, and with great violence took him away out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come unto thee, by examining of whom thyself mayest take knowledge of all these things, whereof we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, saying that these things were so. Now back in verse 5, the first thing Tertullus calls Paul is a plague. I mean, could you imagine being called a plague? He's a pestilent fellow. Well, I mean, it depends on your perspective, right? If, if you're a Christian, he definitely was not a, a pestilent fellow, but to the Jews who wanted to hold on to their legalism and tradition and, and things like that, here comes Paul wanting to disrupt the apple cart. You know, I got thinking about that, and I used to be an employee at UPS, and everything was done on a seniority level. You had a, if you wanted to move up, you had to wait. You, you, you put your name on a list, it was the Teamsters, and you had to wait. And then, uh, so I waited, I waited, I waited for, to get the next shift up, and all of a sudden, and this might be why they went on strike back then, all of a sudden they outsourced people. They just bypassed the Teamsters and just started hiring people off the street. And we're like, whoa! And they're hiring for the shift I want. And so imagine being a Jew. You finally made it to the Sadducee. You finally made it to the, the, the council. I've been waiting my whole life. And then here comes Paul. Here comes Jesus. Here comes Peter. Here comes Paul preaching that Jesus is the Messiah and that he's a fulfillment of all the law. I mean, it's not far from this time period that Jerusalem's going to be destroyed in 70 A.D. The temple's going to be destroyed. So they found Paul to be a pest. You're, being, you're, you're disrupting our world that we've waited so long and we have our positions finally fixed. I have a retirement plan. And, but here's the first charge. Here's the real first charge they make against him. Sedition. Now, sedition is the same thing as insurrection. It's rebellion. And this is the only crime, only charge towards Roman law that they make towards Paul. That he is a sedition among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, this first charge, they say Paul is an insurrectionist. He is causing all the people to want to Buck the authority of Rome. So this would have perked the ears of Felix. So far, I mean, so far we've not seen any kind of Roman charges against Paul. So they say, here's Paul. He's this guy. He wants to, to take over and calls all these people. Number two, not only did they say he's of the sedition, but they charge him with sectarianism. Sectarianism is anti-Jew anti-Jewish uh, or heresy. Now, and here he says, and a ringleader. Now that ringleader ring in the Greek, it's pretty interesting. It's a term that they would go out one who stands in front of rank. It's a military term. And he is the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, Nazarenes is an interesting word. This is the first time and the only time that we see the Christians referred to as Nazarenes. So we know that they were first called Christians at Antioch, and Christians was the name given to them by their enemies. I mean, they didn't call themselves Christians. The world called them Christians. But Nazarenes was a very derisive term 
towards them. Um, you know, if you remember uh, what, they, what, Nathaniel, what Nathaniel said, where Jesus is from Nazareth. What it is is the followers of Christ who's from Nazareth, and they disdained Nazareth. They said, can anything good come from Nazareth? And that's what Nathaniel had said. So the Nazarenes was kind of like a, a, a slam on the, these followers of Jesus Christ. So, but number two, the charge against Paul was this anti or heresy, this new religion, which would have been very uh, a critical thing because any religions, they had to register with Rome. And if this was a, a new religion that hadn't registered with Rome yet, he could have got in trouble with that way too. Verse 6, here comes a third uh, charge. Who also hath gone about to profane the temple, whom we took and would have judged according to our law. Profane the, te uh, the temple, the third charge was sacrilegion. And we see that this charge was false. It was a false accusation, and we know that that was originally in what the Jews from Asia had, remember they started the riot with this, this claim that Paul had come and brought Gentiles to the temple. But, you know, in verse 6, at the end of it, if you notice, Tertullus now, having given the false charges against Paul, very thin charges, now he has to juggle that he makes the Jews look good, but not, the, not Rome too bad with how Lysias handled the situation. So how does he make the Jews look good to Felix here at the end of verse 6? He says, and would have judged according to our law. We were going to actually judge Paul, verse 7, but the chief captain Lysias came upon us. <laughs> we were so peaceful and quiet. Do you remember the mob? that tried to kill Paul? Remember that, that, that the, the zealots were actually going to kill him, and that's when Lysias had rescued Paul. Lysias had to rescue Paul more than once. But that's not the way Tertullus is, is saying this. In verse 7, Lysias came and, and took him, and with great violence took him away out of our hands. Commanding his accusers, Lysias commanded the Sanhedrin to come unto thee by examining of whom thyself mayest take knowledge of all these things whereof we accuse him. And in verse 9 it says, And the Jews also assented, saying that these things were so. So you can imagine, they traveled 65 miles from Jerusalem. It's a 22-hour walk all the way from Jerusalem down to Caesarea, for this case. I mean, it, it wasn't enough that they ran Paul out of Jerusalem. They wanted to kill Paul. So now here they are, and I just can picture the, these group of Jews just sitting in the corner, just nodding their heads. You know, they're, they're assenting unto these ridiculous charges of Paul. And not only were they nodding their heads, they were getting Felix's attention that this is serious to us, and we agree with these charges. Now, Tertullus gives the impression that Paul was guilty of profaning the temple, that they, the Jews, had been within their rights to detain Paul and judge him, 
and that the captain, Lysias, had stepped out of line. Now here's the thing. Do you remember what's in Felix's hand? Felix, in Felix's hand is a letter that Lysias had written accompanying Paul. Do you remember what that letter had said to Felix? It said, I find that there is nothing chargeable with this man. I've actually had to rescue him from being killed, from being murdered. So now is the point where who does Felix believe? Does he believe these charges by Tertullus? Or does he believe the letter that Lysias had given him? So, but next we see the defense. Paul's defense is in verse, 20, or verse 10 through 21. Paul will take each of these three charges and defend them marvelously. I mean, calmly and wonderfully. Paul defends these against himself or uh, for himself these three charges. Verse 10. Then Paul, after that the governor had beckoned unto him to speak, answered, Forasmuch as I know that thou hast been of many years a judge unto this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer. My, for myself. Now, real quick, um, I would want to stop there. Paul is not flattering Felix here. What's he doing? He's establishing the Felix that Felix has been around. He's been the governor long enough, some uh, estimate between five and ten years at this point. He's been the governor long enough that first, if Paul had been a ringleader of this new sect called the Nazarenes and is sowing sedition and trying to overthrow Rome, don't you think that Felix would have heard about this by now? And so, secondly, I think Paul's also saying, you've been a judge long enough, you've been in this position long enough to kind of know about the hair trigger from the Jews. Things kind of rock their world, upset the apple cart. I just could imagine uh, they just felt so entitled to lodge a complaint every other day. And so, I think that's what Paul's doing in verse 10. He's not flattering Felix, but he says, you've been a uh, many years you've been a judge unto this nation. So Paul is defending himself. He doesn't have a lawyer present. You know, the... It's amazing. I, I keep thinking for some reason about the OJ trial and just these team of people that, you know, with, with OJ, these you know, 10 lawyers and whoever that were with them over on Turtles' side, they had, they had, you know, this great entourage, and here's Paul all by himself. And I think, I think Luther had said, um, when God is with you, one is a majority. One is a majority. Now, not that I read Luther, but that's a pretty, pretty interesting quote. So Paul didn't need anybody else. Verse 11. We'll, we'll go ahead and read to verse 21 and then come back. Because that thou mayest understand that there are yet but twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem for the worship, and they neither found me in the temple disputing with any man, neither raising up the people, neither in the synagogues nor in the city. Neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me. But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and the prophets, and have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, 
that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscious void of offense toward God and toward man. Now after many years I came to bring alms to my nation and offerings, whereupon certain Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with multitude nor with tumult, who ought to have been here before thee, and object, if they had aught against me. Or else let these same here say, if they have found any evil doing in me, while I stood before the council. Except it be for this one voice that I cried standing among them, touching the resurrection of the dead, I am called in question by you this day. This is the end of Paul's defense, but I want us to notice some characteristics about Paul's defense. He addresses all three of the charges. In verse 11, he addresses it with, Because thou mayest understand that there are yet but twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem for the worship. I've only been here 12 days, and five of those days, Paul's been locked up in Caesarea. So he's only had seven days to this first, remember the first accusation was sedition, insurrection, insubordination, trying to overthrow the, uh, overthrow the government. You're saying in the last seven days, in the last 12 days, I've had the ability to raise up this army and all of this descent to, to Rome. So Paul's saying, I've not been here that long. Now, now, if you think about it, back then they didn't have like a Facebook group Paul was a part of, and he was leading this, this sect of the Nazarenes remotely and, and doing all those things. No, I mean, he had to be on the spot there. So first of all, he addresses the first charge. I've not been here long enough to be causing sedition amongst the people. Now, the second accusation, verse 12, And neither found me in the temple disputing with any man, neither raising up the people, neither in the synagogues nor in the city. Now remember, Paul did not come to preach in Jerusalem. Do you remember why Paul came to Jerusalem? Paul came to deliver the gifts that he had collected from Macedonia and Achaia, from the church and to deliver that love offering unto the suffering saints and to worship. Paul did not preach in Jerusalem. And so he did not have even an opportunity to raise up dissension. Verse 13, here's a big one. Neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me. Right here, Felix should have dropped the case. Right here he should have dismissed it. The, the next two accusations are based on religious matters, not Roman matters. This was the one Roman issue that there was, and Paul answered it. They, they don't have proof that I've raised sedition and insurrection against Rome. And honestly, if they go back through the temple records and look, they're going to see receipts where Paul paid for the Nazarites, when they did the Nazarite vow in Jerusalem for those four people, or it might have been five people. So, verse 14, but here's the thing. Here's the second charge. Paul does acknowledge he's a Christian. He doesn't deny the faith, but he denies that Christianity is heretical. Now, remember in verse 14, verse 14 I love, we may park here for a little bit, There's 14's rich. 
So he is going to confess, verse 14, unto thee that after the way. Notice what Paul calls it. He does not call it after the way of the Nazarenes. Tertullus called it the Nazarenes. And you have to imagine that phrase, that derogatory name, was in the culture because they didn't have to explain it to Felix. So Nazarenes was probably being used as a slur to, to all of them. But Paul doesn't call it the Nazarenes. Christi the Christians had prefer uh, preferred to go after the way. Remember, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so Paul calls it after the way, which they call heresy. So there's the second charge. So worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and the prophets. Now, <laughs> Paul kind of burns them here. If, if You've got to look closely. What is the most historic common title throughout the Old Testament that they called God? The God of our fathers. So Paul is saying, the God that they claim to have is my God. I'm not in heresy. I'm not inventing a religion. But he's the God of my father. I bet that burned the Jews a little bit. Like, how can he be calling our God his God? Now, if you look through the Old Testament, Genesis, Daniel, I mean, it's always the God of our fathers, in verse 14, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. Now, here's the thing. Half of the Sadducees could not even make that comment because the Sadducees only believed in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. They didn't believe in the prophets. Now, Paul says, I believe all of it's inspired of God, and I believe all of it. Who's the one who's in heresy here? Me? I believe it all. But half of them, and especially the high priest, Ananias, they do not believe in the prophets. And I just imagine that, that, you know, it kind of burned them on that. But we know that the Sadducees not only didn't believe the prophets, but they did not believe in the resurrection. In verse 15, he brings that up. And have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, not all of them, but the Pharisees believe the resurrection, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. Now, if you all remember... The Sadducees, again, they don't believe in the resurrection because they don't believe the resurrection is taught in the New Testament or taught in the Torah. The Torah is the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses. They're all three synonymous. So the Sadducees say resurrection is not taught in the Torah. And Jesus refuted them. You remember what Jesus told them. He says, you do err not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. Jesus had said, is it not written that I am the God of thy father Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob? And Jesus says, God is the God of the living, not the dead. Right. Now, think about that. In the Old Testament, or in the first five books, God says, I am the God. He didn't say, I was the God. I am the God. Well, by now, uh, by Jesus' time, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were dead. But God's the God of the living, not the dead. So they're not dead, meaning they've been raised. 
So Jesus is saying it teaches it perfectly in the first five books. And then secondly, they didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah from the first five books. And don't get me started on that. I've, uh, I've, some people call it the gospel according to Moses. The first five books is the gospel according. I mean, look all throughout the Pentateuch and you'll see Jesus everywhere. I mean, it starts with him being the seed of the woman that would bruise the head of the serpent. Moses said, God will raise up another prophet like unto me, hear ye him. Jesus is the brazen serpent that was lifted up and looked to him and lived. Jesus is the Passover lamb. Jesus is the blood. His blood is the blood of the Passover lamb. Jesus is the lamb which God had provided in the place of Isaac. Jesus is all throughout the first five books of the Old Testament. It's the gospel according to Moses. And uh, he's Noah's Ark. He's the priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's the bread of life <laughs> who has come down from heaven. And uh, he is the mercy seat, and he is the flesh of the veil of the temple that was split in two. Paul is coming at this as, look, we're not formal Jews I'm a fulfilled Jew that was the attitude of the Christian Jew we're not a formal Jew we're a, a fulfilled Jew Jesus has fulfilled but Paul uh, I love that he turned the tables on them and he brought into this light that look in verse 15 that there will be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. And Paul turns the table and saying, look, half of the crowd right here doesn't even believe all of the Old Testament. They're the heretics, not me. If anybody's a heretic, it's them. But in verse 15, I also want us to notice that the hope which we have in God, even Christianity, both Christians and Jews, both had hope of the resurrection of the just and the unjust. That is the hope of the gospel. We need to understand as we live our life and we go and the Lord takes us one day that there's the hope of the resurrection. That's the hope. That's the success. That's the victory which we will have as we will all be raised. And so in verse 16, Paul believed this so much. This wasn't just doctrinal orthodoxy to Paul. Paul believed the resurrection so much it moved him. It moved him to do what he does. In verse 16, that's what he says. And herein, where's the herein? The resurrection, the hope which he has in God in the resurrection, do I exercise myself to have always a conscious void of offense toward God and toward man. So the works which the resurrection, the works which that way produces in me is that of not offending God or man. It's, it's a very peaceful <laughs> sect, right? It's a very peaceful demonstration Paul's giving. That, that word exercise is interesting there. It is a, a straining. It actually means to labor or to strive. The doctrine of the resurrection promotes godliness. It promotes a holy lifestyle. 
and it's opposite to the kind of lifestyle that not believing in the resurrection would promote. Remember what Paul said in Corinthians to those who did not believe the resurrection? He says, if there's no resurrection, why don't you eat, drink, for tomorrow you shall die. Just live it up. And also the resurrection, it moves us to godly living. It moves us to holy living. And in 1 John 3, you all know this verse. It says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. The resurrection promotes godly living. Not only do we have the hope of the gospel, of our resurrection, but we know that the Lord's coming back. And if anything's going to motivate you to holiness and godly living, it should be the fact that we are never going to die. And we are always going to be in heaven. And so that moves us to, and so that's what Paul is saying. Look, if you've caught me doing anything, It's living out this resurrection hope I've got. In verse 17, he says, Now after many years, I came to bring alms to my nation and offerings. Now this is the third charge. This is the defense against sacrilegion. Verses 17 through 21. Paul is giving Felix a rundown of his moments coming to Jerusalem. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms to my nation and offerings, whereupon certain Jews from Asia, here's the problem, here's the real issue. Paul doesn't say it blatantly, but we know it's the real issue. Here's the reason there was a riot. Here's the reason Paul's in bondage. Here's the reason they're wasting Felix's time, right? It's these Jews. It's these Asian Jews who was going around just throwing dirt and seeing where it could stick. Verse 17, now after many, or verse 18, whereupon certain Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with multitude nor with tumult, who ought to have been here before thee, and object if they had ought against me. Now here's a big thing with Roman law. If you flee, if your accuser does not come with you before law, before the judge, the judge throw it out. This was a very serious issue that Paul's accusers weren't even there. They're not there. They're nowhere to be found because it was false. It was a lie. Verse 20, Or else let these same here say, if they have found any evil doing in me while I stood before the council, except to be for this one voice, and this, what Paul did, Paul admits, hey, I did something, but this is neither a Roman crime or a Jewish crime, what he does. Verse 21, except it be for this one thing, the, this one voice that I cried standing among them, touching the resurrection of the dead, I am called and questioned by you this day. All right, so Paul's defense is complete. He has successfully defended the accusations against him. They had accused Paul of being anti-Roman and anti-Jew, but they could not provide any evidence. And I believe Paul made compelling, compelling defense. But what is... What is Felix's verdict? It's sad. (laughs) Verse 22, And when Felix heard these things, having more perfect knowledge of that way, he deferred them, 
and said, when, Lys when Lysias, the chief captain, shall come down, I will know the uttermost of your matter. And he commanded a centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty, that he should forbid none of his acquaintance to minister or come unto him. Felix just cops out. It's a no decision. I'm going to wait on Lysias. First of all, why are you going to wait on Lysias to come down when you've got Lysias' letter? And secondly, Lysias never comes. We don't have any records of Lysias coming. I doubt he commanded. Felix is in a tough spot, just like all politicians. He's stuck between justice and popularity. What's right to do versus what is the popular thing to do? And he's stagnant. He, he doesn't know what to do. He can't release Paul because it will infuriate the Jews and there could be unrest. And he can't really, you know, execute Paul because he, he's a Roman citizen that is charged of a crime that there's no evidence that he committed. Now, in verse 22, there's a few thoughts. There's three thoughts about this more perfect knowledge of that way. Either that means that Felix had just now, after listening to Paul, had a more, uh, more of an understanding of that way. Or it could be that Felix wanted to know more about that way, and so he wanted to wait for Lysias to come down. Or, as we're going to see in, in verse 24, his wife comes, who is a Jewess, and she could have taught Felix about that way. Now, in verse 24... Verse 24 through 27. Okay, we just got through tragedy one, the tragedy of this trial. Here comes the second tragedy, the tragedy of Felix's soul. Verse 24, And after certain days when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, which was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. And as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this time when I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. He hoped also that money should have been given him of Paul, that he might loose him. Wherefore he sent for him the oftener and communed with him. But after two years, Porcius Festus came unto Felix's room, and Felix, willing to show the Jews a pleasure, left Paul bound. Okay, so back up to verse 24. Here's the tragedy. Now, uh, Drusilla was Felix's wife. She was a Jewess. She was actually the daughter of Herod Agrippa who had killed James in Acts chapter 12, the, the Herod that had the worms eat him from the inside out. And then he is, she is also the sister to the King Agrippa, which is coming in the next chapter. But she's a Jewess. So I'm assuming that uh, in verse 24, that Felix had called Paul to minister or to talk about concerning the faith because it might have been a curiosity of Drusilla being a Jewess. She wanted to know about the Messiah. But here notice it's called concerning the faith in Christ. You notice the subject there, the faith. We, we have seen Christianity or the way called three things in just this chapter. The Nazarenes, the way, and the faith. Now, the faith is the subject of salvation. Um, faith in Christ is just part of the faith of Christ. Do you all understand that? It's called, uh, we contend for the faith. It's the subject, the faith. We contend for the faith. 
Here you have Paul. Now, can you imagine this? Paul coming over to your house and witnessing to you and your family. You're not saved. I mean, is there anybody really better to come and witness to you than, than, than Paul? And here they hear the gospel. It is no doubt that Paul, I mean, he didn't come to Jerusalem to preach, but he ends up preaching, doesn't he? So not, not, he no doubt presented Jesus as the fulfilled Messiah to Drusilla and to Felix here. That Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is the one who offers redemption and salvation through grace. And whosoever believes upon him shall live, shall have eternal life. So Paul is certainly giving them the gospel. And in verse 25, notice the three things Paul reasons. Righteousness. He deals with yesterday's sin and today's sin. Then temperance. He deals with today's lifestyle. Not only do you need to deal with sin, these three subjects that Paul goes over is, is very comprehensive. Righteousness. You need, your, you need your sins forgiven. You need them forgiven that happened yesterday. You need them forgiven the day. You need them forgiven forever and ever. Temperance, the lifestyle, the self-control that we should live our lives in, and then judgment. This is the future. He talked about the past, the present, and the future. The judgment to come, and what happened to Felix? He trembled. That word there is he was terrified. And he answered, Go thy way for this time when I have convenient season I will call for thee. You know, Dr. Carl Menninger wrote a book that said, Whatever Became of Sin? And he points out in his book that the very word sin has gradually dropped out of our vocabulary. The word along with the notion of sin. We talk about mistakes. We talk about weaknesses and inherent tendencies, faults, and even errors. But we do not face up to the fact of sin. The world has forgotten what sin is. And then when Paul is speaking about judgment, I wonder if Paul used the exact same preaching that he used to the Jews there, the Greeks on Mars Hill. Yeah, I'll quote it. He says in Acts 17, 31, because he, meaning God, hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, Whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he hath raised him from the dead. God is going to judge the whole world in righteousness by that man, by Jesus Christ. Here's the fact. Jesus is either your Savior or he's going to be your judge. He's one of those two things. He's your Savior or your judge. So I imagine Felix was trembling at the weight which was happening here, but we have come to find out that it looked like it was more of he was moved. He was moved in his heart or he was moved in his mind. He may have been moved emotionally, but there was no power. There was no power here because we see that Felix later wanted to bribe Paul or actually was wanting Paul to bribe him to let him go. So we see the, the characteristic and the behavior of Felix. 
But the tragedy is that Felix had let the moment pass. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, it's behold now is the accepted time, behold now is the day of salvation. You know that song, Almost Persuaded? Seems like some soul to say, go spirit, go thy way. Come some convenient day, on thee I'll call. You know, I got thinking about that, and I've always understood, actually, open up to 305 with me, and we'll... Uh, We'll actually sing that, so open up to 305 and keep it there, and we'll sing it here in a minute. In your hymn books, 305. He says, almost persuaded now to believe, almost persuaded Christ to receive. Seems now some soul to say, go spirit, go thy way some more convenient day on the I'll call. And I always thought that I'll call on Christ or I'll call on the Spirit or I'll call on for salvation, which is right. But look what Felix does. I almost think this is in the spirit of what Felix does, this song. In verse 25, he says, Go thy way for this time when I have a convenient season, I will call. For thee. How many do that? How many procrastinate? How many do we see? Now, we all believe in the sovereign grace of God and God's elect will be saved, and all that the Father hath given him shall come, and he in no wise will cast anyone out. But how many times do we see people turn the Spirit away? And it may not just be for salvation, but it could be something God is pressing on your heart to surrender in your life. And you're like, I've moved, I've moved, but I'll get to it. I'll get around to it. That is a bigger tragedy than the tragedy we see of this court. Was here Felix and Drusilla considering the value of their soul so little. Didn't Jesus say that? Jesus says, what does a man gain? If he, he uh, gained the whole, what does a man profit? He's gained the whole world and lost his own soul. People do not think about their soul. They think about everything else. But they never think about their soul. I was telling the kids on the way home the other day, you know, we're always going to be conscious. Rather, we're at home with the Lord. Rather, what happens after death, you'll be conscious. You will never lose consciousness and you will be conscious for eternity. Now think about your soul, the value of your soul, and the price which Jesus paid to redeem and rescue and ransom you from hell for eternity. Oh, what grace, what mercy, what love He has given to us that we should be called the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him. As he, I love when Sister Harriet plays face-to-face -face on the piano. I just think about that and how real that is. It could be the morrow. It might be the morrow. And certainly we need to think about our soul. The tragedy of Felix is that he failed in every which way. He failed Paul. 
He failed the Jews. It was a, it was a stalemate. He didn't get anything done. He just said, I'll, I'll just hold on to Paul. How long did he hold on to Paul for? Two years. And then Festus comes, and we're going to see him next week. And then Festus comes, and Paul gets to go through this all over again, this trial all over again. So if you would, let's stand, and if you've, uh, if you've kept your place there in him.